You're listening to Conversations with Shanta, a podcast that unpacks the community's grittiest, most vexing problems, hosted by Shonda Smith-Baker. In this powerful conversation from 2019, Dr. Yusuf Salam, one of the Central Park Five, shares his story of resilience on Conversations with Shonda. Wrongfully convicted at 15, he spent nearly seven years in prison before his conviction was overturned in 2002. Now he serves as a member for New York City's 9th City Council District. Tune in to hear about the power of owning your narrative, the scars of lost time, and how to move forward after being knocked down. My name is Dr. Yusuf Salam. I'm one of the Exonerated Five. 30 years ago, we were falsely accused of raping the Central Park jogger. This case became a case, a pivotal point in, our, in, in the criminal justice system in that it began to open the door for super predator laws, things of that nature, really looking at young people as being um, the most capable of committing the most heinous crimes. 13 years after that, they found out we didn't do it, but then there became this cloud of suspicion around us where they tried to clean up their act, in, in, for lack of a better description, by making the real perpetrator of the crime become the sixth man, you know? so. Fast forward to today, in May of uh, 2019, the great uh, Ava DuVernay has released When They See Us, depicting the true story of the Central Park Five. And it's been an honor and a pleasure to be a part of this process. You know, they always talk about those closest to the uh, pain should be a part of the solution, or or at the table at least, Mm -hmm. to discuss how we fix this. And I just, uh, I'm honored to be here, to share, to discuss, and participate. Awesome. So you you start out your introduction talking about the Exonerated Five. Yes. And so Miss Oprah, you guys were on, on Oprah where she said, we're no longer going to talk about it as a Central Park Five. So I noticed that when you talk about what happened before May, you went to Central Park Five and then after to exonerate it. How does that, how does that new language feel to you? I mean, it feels good, actually. It feels like we need to understand the marriage between the two and how we're kind of inseparable in a way, you know, we were, the moniker that was placed upon us was, wasn't something that we accepted for ourselves. It was kind of just a description. And we began to raise our hand and say, yes, I am one of those as a part of taking back our power. Mm-hmm. And being interviewed by Oprah and her rebranding us, the Exonerated Five, just fits so well because there, you know, when you, when you hear the word, the Central Park Five, you think about the case, you think about everything about the case, and also coupled with that is the suspicion, that cloud that goes along with it. But when you hear exonerated five, you have to unequivocally understand that these men had not done this crime, that they have been completely exonerated and absolved of any mm-hmm. any involvement in this case. Well, tell me how you got to Ava. How did, how did that unfold? So beautifully, uh, Raymond Santana, spoke actually he dm'd her okay and it's so funny because you think about songs that have you know i'm a slide in people's dms and stuff <laughs> like that and it's kind of cool that he 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 dm'd her after he saw selma and he was so blown away really by the truth that she told that she wasn't afraid to you know portray the seemingly ugly sides of a story as as we pursue truth and so the one scene in there that really kind of kicked it off for Raymond was that he was like, wow, she actually had a person who was saying that 
she was chucking Martin out on the side, you know, in the film, like she had, she had this person calling and kind of like trying to get at her and stuff like that in terms mm-hmm. of Claretta. Mm-hmm. And to have that that side to it, to show that everyone is human, to show that we all have these, these um, to show that we have these moments where even though we're doing a great work, we're absolutely human, mm-hmm. you know? And he found that not only was it an opportunity to really shoot for the moon, because I mean, Ava DuVernay, the caliber of a director who has... Really, she's magic, you know. That 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 kind of director to be putting to put their stamp on the Central Park Five story became important. And so, of course, he kind of tweeted her, "Hey, what's your next movie gonna be? The Central Park Five, you know." Um, had the fingers crossed, you know, stuff like that. And he followed her, and lo and behold, she followed him back. And this was brilliant. This is before. I think any of us really knew the power of social media. He had an account that really was almost like the the um, the door to the guys in that he called it the Central Park Five. He called his account the Central Park Five. Wow. You know, and so that was pretty powerful. And so when she followed him back, you know, they began to have a conversation and that conversation led to us meeting each other. And after we met each other, it was like, oh yeah, we have to do this. She's absolutely the right person. This is the right story. What better marriage to bring about than to have her tell this story, you know? And we felt that it was important too because you had the Central Park Five by Ken Burns come out and it did a tremendous job in giving us our voices back. I mean, unequivocally, it was like, we didn't have to argue with people anymore. We were able to just say, have you watched the film? Or other people saying, hey, have you watched the film? Or here, sit down and watch this film, you know? And once that happened, having our voices back, having people, you know, have a conversation about criminal justice or the criminal system of injustice, mm-hmm. you know, it became important for for people to look at this case. Mayor Koch, back in 1989, Mayor Koch said, you know, folks will folks want to see what the criminal justice system is like. They'll get an opportunity to see what the criminal justice system is like through the Central Park Jogger case. And fast forward to maybe 2014, maybe 2014. Mayor Koch, it was the same, it was the same year that Mayor Koch passed away. So to fast forward to that year, mm-hmm. Mayor Koch actually walked into a theater that we were walking out of to watch the Central Park Five documentary. Somebody tweets me and says, wow, what was it like to see Mayor Koch in the theater watching your film? And I said, wow, that's amazing. But more importantly, what happened afterwards? <laughs> <laughs> what happened next? You know? yeah. And of course they told me that he, he engaged the crowd. You know, part of this is like, I felt that it was, it was his way of trying to get to the truth, trying to understand what had been placed on his table. Mm-hmm. You know, here it was, the police department and the media and everybody that was involved on that side was presenting this case and wanting everybody that had some kind of importance to voice their opinion. So do you, you know? think that this case was a conspiracy or do you think it was a situation where the that got ahead of people? 
you know, do you think that the players understood what they were doing at the time? It's funny. It's funny that you asked, did I think this was a conspiracy? I would say 100%. And I say that because when I understand the conspiracy, uh, and I'm just going to go a step further to destroy the black boys. You know, I met Dr. Juanza Kajufu in prison. Um, he came and he actually engaged a lot of us and, and we came in contact with his books and his writings. And interestingly enough, as we look at the whole prison industrial landscape right now, we understand that it's not only been a concerted effort to destroy black boys, but also to destroy black girls, you know? And so when I look at my inclusion in the conspiracy, I always think about the choice that I had. And that choice was a choice to say, do I want to accept this definition of me, this definition of the worst that I could ever be described in life as a rapist? The only crime that trumps rape is child molestation. Do I want to accept that definition? You know, and of course I refused. And of course, all of us refused. All of us said, this is not us. We didn't do this. Unbeknownst to us, we didn't know who did this. And so part of the reality of the case is it, it kind of casts suspicion on the others because we didn't know each other. And so early on, we were kind of like, well, damn, how did he get that mark on his face regarding, you know, in reference to Kevin? And when Kevin told us what happened, we were like, oh, shucks. So it, it cleared up the suspicion. It, it made us understand almost um, immediately that we had all been played. Mm. And so like when we fast forward to when they see us and they have that the moment where we're in the holding cell, you know, and folks are like, oh, man, I lied on you and I lied on you, too. You know, and that whole notion of why are they doing it? Why are they doing this to us? Mm-hmm. Um, and Did that then, actually unfold in, in real life? That was real life. That was real. That was really like we could not. We were all wrapped into a collective twilight zone that we were experiencing and trying to make sense of it. And for us to meet each other in prison, um, and I always say prison, but I feel like prison starts in the holding cell. That's the inception of the whole thing. This this journey that you take. It was it was tremendous. And it was a disservice too. And I say that because we want, say, police officers, we want the criminal justice system, we want DAs, we want prosecutors, we want other folks that are involved, the assistants, we want the forensic scientists, we want the reporters who write the stories to get it right. We don't want there to be a situation where 30 years later, a film has to come out to reveal the truth about this case. Yeah. Part of what I believe Ava was trying to do, and, and actually I know because I've heard her talk about it, is um, to address the narrative. Yes. Right. And so there was a narrative and, and there's been a narrative and, and, and will likely be a narrative for a while around who brown and black boys are. And you're in New York and there's a time and there was a group of boys that were in that park um, doing harm um, to people. It just wasn't you. Yes. And um, and so there was, uh, you know, sweeping fear about what was happening with the crack epidemic, a surge of gang violence and other things. And so how do you talk about the difference between what happened to you and what needs to happen in the criminal justice system related to people that are actually out there doing harm? Well, see, that's the thing. I think that the criminal justice system is a system of injustice. I mean, even if you're guilty, if you if you're guilty, so I, I know people that I was in prison with who had actually done crime, 
but they hadn't done all of the crimes that was attached to them. And so not everybody, but there were some folks that came up to me that said, man, you know, I was guilty of this particular crime, but they attached all of these other crimes to me because they said it was the same MO that I hadn't done. You know, I think that the, the ability for us as free people to understand the connection between putting a person in prison, whether they did a crime or didn't do a crime, is that one day they're going to come home and be our neighbors. And as a neighbor, do we want a person to be reacclimated and, and, and have had their, um, you know, have, have had paid for their crime so that they can be a person that's back in society and be productive? Or do we want a person that is turned into a monster that's unleashed on society? And I think the reality is being able to have inclusion of services like school or, you know, anything that helps a person figure out what's next. Mm -hmm. Because the problem is that when you return men back to society who may have been children when they entered, when you return men back to society who may have been broken when they entered, you also need to return these people back to a state of value that they can add that back to society as opposed to taking away from it. Mm -hmm. The problem is that then you have these real physical red lines which show that this is where we're going to um, round up crime and we're going to over police in these communities and create a situation. I mean, this is stuff as we look back and we begin to analyze it, it becomes so clear that a lot of the things that have gone on can't be talked about without the understanding of the conditions that created it. And so, you know, you have people saying, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. And then you have folks who have no boots. So how disrespectful is that? How disrespectful is it for there to be a war on drugs in the 80s and there to be a uh, opioid epidemic in the 2000s, you know? That is being treated very differently. Yeah, yeah, I mean, we needed the Betty Ford clinics of the world to be able to address, you know, our uncles or our mothers or our fathers or cousins or even ourselves being caught up in this war, mm. you know, because they knew that this was something that would that would give them the ability to create a, a cash cow. People coming into their own homes, looking on the walls and saying, I, I thought it was a TV there a moment ago. You look out the backyard and your, your, your son, your father, your brother, your mama is out there selling it just to get high. Yeah. That's a problem. If I go back to the series and when I was watching it, I mean, there were some parts that were really just gut wrenching, particularly, I think that like there was a point where I forgot they were acting. <laughs> Yes. Right. Like, I mean, I was just I mean, I'm watching them. I'm relating to my sons. I'm relating to this community. Um, I'm relating to how many others have been in that position. And what what role did you play or the five of you play in helping those actors get ready to play those parts? Yeah, we were consultants. As a matter of fact, I think one of the beautiful things that I've ever seen was the question being asked of Jerome Jerome. You know, did you need counseling after you played this awesome role of Corey Wise? And he said that I didn't need 
to actually physically go to counseling. I was able to walk around with the walking miracle, you know, and so to be able to see what Corey in his own space, um, share his life with Jarrell Jerome, you know, um, for Jarrell Jerome to be almost like he, he, he did something so spectacular in this film that we all believed. I mean, there was, when you say that, that you forgot at one moment that these were actors, there was a scene at the very end, just before Corey, Corey's character walks into the chicken spot that he had long since, you know, been in. And he's walking across the street and I had to do a double take. I thought that was Corey Wise. Mm. I mean, the way he was walking, the headphones around his head, the 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 uh, one the one color clothes, the whole setup. I was like, oh, shucks, that's not even I, I thought that was Corey. You know, there were there were a lot of moments, though, that I'm sure folks had to had to get some type of a counseling session going on, because you got to understand, too, that when you do this work where you're where you're trying to be a truth teller and you're bringing your A game, something happens sometimes, especially this happens. This happens to me when I speak as well. You may go in there with a set plan a set idea of how you want to say what you're going to say and what you're going to do and then all of a sudden something else takes over you know and so that that um tapping into previous or historical dna is important being able to be able to touch into like for me when i think about being ripped out of my mom's arms and i would discuss this with you know um my mother's character, Anjanu Ellis, or Ethan Harisi, my character. It was it was important for me to realize that what had happened is what had happened before. And that what had happened before was us being ripped out of our parents' arms through slavery in the same way that we've seen people who are trying to get into this country being torn out of their parents' arms and separated. You know, here we are saying that we are the land of the free, the home of the brave, right? And we have this reality that's being played out where the xenophobic idea that that person is so different than us, that we could do to them anything. And so when we hear stories about people being found in the desert without their organs, that should be cause for concern because we know that there's a black market out there where people are buying things in order to elongate their lives. And so therefore there's an effort to just go and kill and maim and hurt. Then we know that there's a concerted effort for children to be sold into the sex trade. You know, just this whole other sick side of society that's going on. You know, I remember hearing a, a, a preacher talk one time and he said, Man, if you went into some of these pr- private events that these folks have, he said the party would be so funky the walls would be sweating. Mm. You know, and I mean it's 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 terrible to think about those kinds of things, but then you have these very present, very real examples that can connect you right back to that. Mm. You were in uh, prison for almost seven years. Yes. Have you gained anything from loss? There's always a desire to fill the empty space 
I remember, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna try to answer your question because mm-hmm. I thought about something as you finished your question about when we were in California and we were watching the film. And one of the things that was very painful that we all experienced was our communication afterwards, our understanding of each other's pain through this process that we're going through. And Corey Wise said something really, really powerful and really painful. And he said, I, I wanna be like you all. I wanna be able to have a family. I wanna be able to have children. I don't have none of that. Now mind you, prior to him saying this, he kept saying, I have a big donut. And I was like, what is he talking about? And then he says, I'm living with a hole in me. And so that type of loss, that deep type of loss that can never be filled back up, because to fill that up is to, un- is to undo everything, is to go back in time and start fresh. And we can't go back in time. We know that that's impossible. And so to be able to start here and now is to, I used to think that we were playing catch up. And I realized that I could never play catch up. I could never get back that stuff that was gone. And so now I have to begin to shift, almost as an alchemist, Ben's reality into something else. And so the loss and the getting back from the loss for me is the ability to take pain and shift it into positivity, into pouring into young people, into letting them know that they have a choice, that they can live vicariously through the exonerated five to know what to do and what not to do. And even if you find yourself on the other side of the wall, knowing that if you're at the bottom, the only way you can go is up, that this is not the end of your life, that you have comeback power, you know? And so I've, I think I've, be, I've, been, I've been able to tap into a source of power that is the primary source, you know? And for me, it's been so fulfilling to be able to tap into that source, even though I know that there's a tremendous blank spot that can never be like I can't I can't fill up I can't buy a car that's gonna say okay now I'm okay yeah you know I can pour into my children and that makes me mm-hmm. feel better I can make sure that they have a great life I can make sure my wife has a great life you know I can make sure that the countless lives around the globe that I touch have a tremendous opportunity to live their best lives by sharing with them mm-hmm. So you were exonerated and then you were um, successfully filed a lawsuit. Yes. And um, the five of you um, reached a settlement of $41 million. I just want to talk about, did, did $41 million make make you whole? <laughs> right? <laughs> like, I mean, not. because I think yeah. sometimes we equate dollars with now, now you can put this behind you. You know, you've had several moments, right? Like the moment you went in, you've come out. I know that there was much in the middle. Um, and then you have, um, I think 2002, when Mateus um, came and said that he did it. And then you have this other moment of, of getting that settlement. Do you see all of them as separate? Where did you, did you grow? Did you heal at each step of the way? Or what does that felt like? No, so actually it caused us to fight even more. Hmm. And when I say caused us to fight, I'm talking about us being able to realize that this is a battle. There was a speedy method to convict us. There was no speedy method to make us whole. 
And I think that that's the most unfortunate side to every story. You know, whenever we hear about injustices, whenever we hear about, let's say, the Innocence Project freeing another person who may have been in prison for, I mean, seven years for me is an extremely long time. But then I hear about folks who've been in prison for 40 years. You know, any time that is taken from you is devastating. You know, when they try to compensate you for that time, you still have to fight. I mean, we're talking about 2002, we filed lawsuits, late 2002, early 2003. Our lawsuits went unanswered for another 12 years. My mother said that she wondered if they were trying to have us die in the process. And so when you think about the fact that some of our parents have already have, have passed away recently, you know, they've been able to just taste a piece of the freedom that comes with us actually being vindicated and, you know, restored sort of in society. You know, that reality is, is painful because no amount of money can give you back time. Mm. No amount of money, like, I'm, you know, I was, I was in my car the other day and they kept playing this ad for folks to call in who have been damaged if they were in the military by using these earplugs. These, I guess it was like earplugs that they used as a standard in the military. And they were saying, well, if you have this kind of ear problem, call in so we can help you, you know, get compensated. And you think about that and you say to yourself, you know, if a person lost their leg and they were compensated, does that money give them their leg back? You know, they lost their eye, they lost their hand. You know, we lost we lost a whole bit of time. We lost the pivotal years, the pivotal the pivotal years of our life where we we should have been learning about, you know, how to navigate adult life. But we were learning about how to survive, how to make sure that we didn't get stabbed how to make sure that we, you know, came home whole from this process. And the whole system is still saying in many ways, one, one side is we did it to ourselves. And the other side is we didn't do anything wrong, meaning the system, mm -hmm. you know. And I think that that's very problematic. We've had an opportunity to talk about this a little bit, but that that settlement didn't make your families whole. No. Like your mother, like the families, the rippling impact of the five of you um, being hauled off in the way that you were for something that you didn't do has decimated family. It seems to me like through watching this that your mom just never left your side. Right. Have you uh, have you been able to talk to your mom in whole about what you've each experienced? Has this allowed for the space for you to both have conversations that maybe you haven't had? No, and you know, that's the, I, I'm, I'm so happy that you brought that question up because I'm thinking about that as it related to the, the five of us having no knowledge or understanding of what, e what we each went through. And so even on a more, more personal level, me having that conversation with my mom, me having that conversation with my sister, or me having that conversation with my brother, you know, my mother was a, a um, she was an educator. She taught at Parsons University. She could take any design, break it down, reconstruct it, and make all the sizes that you needed in order to make that design work. You know, she made my, my sister's wedding dress that she told me, man, if this if she bought this dress from a store, this would be over $20,000. You know, just dynamic, powerful work. And then all of that being destroyed. 
there was times where my mother, my mother's friend told me this, um, where my mother would be walking to the train station from work and there would be an officer, maybe a few of them, that would constantly make sure that they were there and they would follow her in their car and be on their bullhorn saying, that's her right there. That's the B-I-T-C-H, the mother of the dog, Yusef Salam. And so if you think about the whole society looking at the whole family as a pariah, you know, I don't know how she survived. And I'm now wanting to have that conversation because that's the other side of the story that has never been told. What happens with families that have had this gaping hole because somebody was pulling at the fabric of the fiber of that family? Yeah, and while you were locked up, your mom was was getting mail and and still playing a protective role. And I've gotten a chance to see a couple of the letters that were being mailed to your mother's home, the hate mail. Oh yeah. Were you astounded by the amount of hate in the community? Yes and no. And the yes part is after I became aware of it. And the no part is I, I was very much shielded from it by my mom. And so like these letters, I didn't find these letters until I came home from prison. And of course you see some of them are dated, at mm-hmm. least one of them is dated and it has the date of April 25th, 1989. This, yeah. is, this, this letter was sent before and hidden. So my mother received it and I never saw it until seven years later. And I, the way I found it was because I came, when I came home, I remember being up all night you know, just just so happy and ecstatic about being finally home and free and it being real. You know, this wasn't a nightmare. As a matter of fact, I didn't want to go to sleep because I didn't want to wake up to a nightmare that I'm still back in prison, right? And I remember trying on my clothes and some of it fit. And I remember trying on my triple fat goose with the fur on the collar. And I was checking myself out in the mirror for a while. And my sister caught me and she said, it still fits, huh? I said, yeah. She said, don't wear that. That style is way out of, that, 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 <laughs> that, that's, over that's over with, you know? And I'm like, man, but this is still cool. Like, I still look like the shaft with this on, <laughs> you know? That was the only coat that I felt like made tall men look okay. Because most of the stuff was either too short or too something that just off, you know? But those coats were really, really cool. But when I, when I was looking in my closet, on the floor was a box of letters. And I remember seeing letters that I had written my mom and, you know, then I came across a stack of mail that I had never seen before. And I opened it and this is what I saw. And these letters weren't sealed. These letters were opened. They were just all collected together. And as I was looking at them, I was like, wow, this is crazy. And I never knew how I would share this information with anyone. And so what I began to do as I traveled the, uh, the country Sometimes I open up with these letters to talk about the damaging effect. This letter in particular that's on top, you know, it says to Yusef Salam, this letter is to let you know that your name has been placed on a list of enemies of society by the Citizens Army New York City branch. You made a decision when you became one of the pack that decided that Central Park was your arena and decided to attack and violate honest citizens who happened to be in the park. So just remember that even 20 to 30 years from now, some people will never forget. And maybe the one time that you don't check your back is the one time that somebody might just be there to say hello. And I usually end right there, but when you think about this, this is talking about time. 
Here we are 30 years later, and this person is saying, 20 to 30 years from now, I'm still going to be hunting for you. I'm still going to be checking for you. Hopefully I can catch you. You know, and that reality is enough to make anybody to go into hiding. But the real thing about it also is the exposure of it. Here, this person is hiding behind what would be similar to a fake account on social media with no photograph as a, as a profile pic. You're not following nobody and nobody's following you, but just somehow you're able to crawl onto somebody's timeline and post something like this. And this is like, in, in the same way, it could be similar to bullying, you know? Um, but one of the things that I've seen as a powerful piece is talking about it, sharing it with the world. I wonder if somebody who's come up to me who wrote this letter has ever come up to apologize. Because I get apologies all the time from the public. They always say that they're sorry and apologetic, but you just never know who this came from because they never came with a return address. Yeah. And when I think about you guys coming out of out of prison and it, it depicted a little bit of, of Raymond's challenges getting a job. And I thought about what it must be like to come out of prison to an unforgiving society. You know, there was also space between getting out and being exonerated where you were having to go to parole. You were having, you were on papers, as I say, right? And you're still carrying um, the scarlet letter going back to a community that um, probably both embraced you and and placed you in, in prison. Can you talk a little bit about what that in uh, that reentry was was like? Man, reentry was tough. Reentry was probably the toughest thing because they were trying to make sure that they never got their hands off of one. You know, like they, like we were always in their grasp. You know, and so us trying to figure out a way to make something out of ourselves. Of course, every single door of success was being shut in all of our faces. You know, it just happened by the grace of God that I had the opportunity to work for my mom. She had an organization back then called People United for Children. And in working for my mom, I got the, I got the opportunity to read almost every book I could that interested me about computers. And I was able to get a job in the healthcare industry because of what I knew about computers. And I was like, I mean, literally every single skill that I found, I like capitalized on it and figured out, you know, back then they had the, the mouse, the mice with the ball in it. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times you would clean out your mouse and just by cleaning off the ball, and then you would put the ball back in the mouse and you would be like, ah, still messed up. And you end up throwing your mouse out and buying a new one only to have that same process repeat months later. I found out that there was a way to clean the whole mouse out and give the person back the mouse and they would swear that they have a brand new mouse, you know? And things like that allow people to say, man, that guy who fixed my computer, can you send him back? This is going on, that's going on. Just all kinds of um, extra stuff that I wasn't necessarily supposed to be fixing, I became the fix-it guy. Mm -hmm. You know, and it kind of opened the door for all kinds of other successes, you know? They always talk about not only being at the right, right place at the right time, but being ready when the opportunity comes. And I was always ready for that, you know. So you've been going around the country doing motivational speaking for some time. Now I understand your mom does the same. Yes. How has um, this moment changed? Has that changed what you've talked about 
you know, unfortunately, I feel like we continue to have ammunition and a, an opportunity for us to reshape the narrative about the criminal justice system. You know, uh, just recently we had three shootings in three different parts of the country where every single assault assailant was white, you know, and many of their manifestos that were found would say things like, I just hate Mexicans or I hate blacks or just stuff that was just really, really hard to swallow in 2019, you know, they always thought about, they always talked rather about, you know, this, so to speak, post-racial society because President Obama had been in office and we were kind of on the other side of race. And of course, now we see that the doors have been flung wide open. You know, it's like the Pandora box of everything evil is jumping out and being given an opportunity to do a dance, you know. Um, the worst part about it is you look at um, shootings as far back as, you know, the, the massacre, massacre that happened in the church with Dylan Roof. Yeah. You know, they then said, hey, man, you want to get some Burger King? After they arrested him, they go take him to, to dinner, you know. But every single time a black person has been a, assumed to be carrying a weapon, could be a cell phone, they just could be raising their hands to say, don't shoot. And what we see is they get shot down. You know, one guy was, was I, forget the, I forget this gentleman's name, but he was shot in the back as he ran away from the cops. And the cop is seen on camera placing a gun on him to justify the shooting. You think about Oscar Grant. You know, I thought I was pulling my taser. And you, you pull your other weapon instead and, and murder this young man. Yeah. You know, lives that are just snuffed out by the system. It's so amazing. The I conversation has shifted to include these kinds of things, this whole conspiracy of sorts for the destruction of us as a people. There's lots of choices on how you get up after you've been knocked down. And there's likely a number of people that will listen to our conversation and think about whatever tough time they're sitting in or whatever tough time their family member is sitting in. Do you have any advice to give them? Absolutely. My advice has always been, after I heard the great words of my mentor, Les Brown, he said, when you fall in life, try to land on your back. Because if you can look up, you can get up. And I'm not saying that you just bounce back up like that. I mean, literally, part of that process is just being still and trying to figure out what the next steps are using your brain and saying to yourself, what can I do to change this situation? And it might take years. I mean, the Central Park Jogger case didn't just happen overnight that we were kind of in prison and then out. We're talking about a 13-year process. And then on top of that, we're talking about another additional 12 years. And then we are still in the case of suspicion when it comes to the establishment that we had to be guilty of something. And so therefore, we're fighting to make sure that whenever you see a person of color as, as a suspect on TV, we need to give that same person the opportunity to be seen as innocent until proven guilty by the system, that we give people who are not of color. Or poor. Yeah. The power of, of narrative, um, both how people might relate to brown and black communities and um, Ava's wonderful way of bringing out 
the rawness of the story and, and the hope of, of the story of, of your life. Um, do you feel like people see you now? I do. You do? I think it's a great opportunity to be placed back in the minds of folks in a positive way because people want to hear us. They want to embrace us. They want to be around us. They want to tell us that we are valuable. You know, I was at an event with Raymond Santana recently and we were on stage because it was just a lot of chaos going on in the, in, on the ground level with everybody else. And some folks that had come on stage noticed us and recognized us. And this one young lady, she uh, she grabbed me and she she held me and then she started crying. And in between her, her sobbing, she said, thank you. Thank you for surviving. You know, and I was just like, wow, you know, th th those very real moments of what we mean to society. You know, it's on one hand, you see the system makes us all think that we are the guilty ones, even us, even ourselves. Sometimes we think that when you have these cases, then they turn around. It's like, man, thank you for surviving. You look at a Corey Wise, thank you for surviving. You know, I mean, I, I use him in particular because he's my friend and was my friend from before. But I use him in particular because that scene in the, in, in the prison where they come to him and say, hey, you know, time for your parole hearing. And he's like, nope, I'm not going. And they're like, you're not going. You know, like he said, yeah, they don't want to hear my truth. I don't want to waste my time. He was willing to stay in prison for the rest of his time and come out having completed everything. You know, and I say that in the context of all of the hell that he was going Right. Rather than admit guilt. Rather than admit guilt. Yeah. Hmm. Earlier, you read a poem about the phoenix. As we close, will you read that? Yeah. So, you know, the thing that we were talking about was the this statement that I made, you know, that the Central Park Jogger case is a love story between God and his people. It's a story of a criminal system of injustice turned on its side to produce a miracle in modern times of how people can be brought low only to rise because truth can never stay buried, of a people buried and forgotten. The system forgot we are seeds, and instead of a social death, we emerged like the phoenix from the ash, because as they built the fire to consume us, they forgot the owner of the heat. You know, when I think about God and God's presence being here at all times, and he makes himself known through the momentous and the subtleties, being one of the exonerated five makes me proud because I can look at my life as a servant being utilized for the greater good. This episode of Conversation with Shonda was supported by the Black Collective Foundation. The Black Collective Foundation is a philanthropic movement advancing the genius of Black-led change. It is Minnesota's first Black community foundation working to create a thriving ecosystem of Black-led change. Together, we are advancing the genius of Black-led change and building a community where all Black people are holistically well and living in dignity and prosperity. To learn more about the Black Collective Foundation, go to minnesotablackcollectivefoundation.org.